I'm not interested in sticking to one idea and then being known for that one idea. I'm the mother of a thousand ideas. TTYA Talks, the podcast. This episode is powered by Kozo, a lifestyle experiences brand, live and direct from Accra, Ghana. This is my first TTYA Talks in Ghana. I'm very nervous. I'm very, very nervous. But I'm excited to be here. Um, I started a podcast as a safe space to inspire, motivate and allow you to listen to real, authentic career lifestyle stories from women who are really pioneering in the creative industries and sports. This year is 10 years since I started my brand. I was the first black British brand to be in Selfridges. So for all you Americans that are in the house, that's the equivalent of Saks Fifth Avenue, just so that you understand the levels. 10 years of galvanizing communities, 10 years from addressing the lack of representation within fashion. And the brand has now grown into to a full lifestyle brand, which encompasses its podcasts, workshops, and events. My mission has always been to create a more equitable space through connection, information, and network. And as I celebrate my 10th year anniversary, I'm so proud to be with people who have followed my journey and to take it to new whips. So yeah, every season we kind of have a theme and the theme this season has been around pivoting and prospering. Many people don't know is that I actually have a degree in forensic science. My mum was Nigerian, she weren't trying to hear this creative business. So I had to get my academic degree first and then I pivoted into doing what I really wanted to do for myself. And I wanted to set up a series because I think sometimes as creators and entrepreneurs, you know, we can have multiple revenue streams and we can also have really cool side hustles that are sometimes within our industry, but also amplify. And also at the same time, because sometimes they like to say you can't do multiple things. Jack of all trades, master of none. But I don't actually believe in that phrase. And that brings me on to our guest today. Our guest today is a Hall of Fame induced marketing executive, entrepreneur, author of her memoir, The Urgent Life. She is worthy of the Harvard Business School case study written about her career titled Leading with Authenticity and Urgency. She's a dynamic, influential business leader who has consistently broken barriers and shattered glass seasons throughout her career in various industries, including her roles as the global CMO of Netflix, CMO of Endeavor, and the CBO of Uber, head of marketing at Apple Music and iTunes, and the head of music and entertainment and marketing at PepsiCo. She is a true trailblazer, breaking down barriers for future generations of leaders and leaving a legacy of innovation and empowerment. But by far, in her words, her greatest achievement has been raising her 14-year-old daughter, Leah. I'm sure she's going to speak about more on that. Before I bring Bazoma out this morning, for those who know me, you'll know that my mum is the biggest prayer warrior and she speaks so much into existence for me. And I've worked within this entertainment fashion lifestyle space for almost 18 years. And Mazoma is actually the only person that I saw that looks like me, that represented, that was fighting for us. So on so many levels, without getting too emotional, today is a really, really, really manifestation of something that I've wanted for a really long time. And my mom has prayed on it for me. So Mazoma, before you come out, I just want to say thank you for being here for me today. Doing anything on the continent is hard. I just did my first TTYA in Lagos last week. So if anyone's had I try to activate on the continent you know how hard it is and just by the fact of you guys sharing your time and being in this space with me today it means so much to me so thank you and without further ado I'd like to welcome to the stage Bazoma St John welcome to TTYA Talks how are you feeling today great yes has dirty December been Decembering you no sleep (laughs) no sleep but I'm here 
team no sleep but we are outside so with all of these things i think before we jump straight in i always like to say let's talk about roots and culture mm. let's talk about the beginning where you've come from and yeah. how we before we jump into korea okay well um i am ghanian hello from uh yes my dad is is in sima that's where the name bosma comes from and uh, my mom is from Sagandi Takrade, so I claim the Fanti. Eh, exactly. So when people speak to me in Chi, I'm just I answer them in Fanti because why? You know? Any case, um, my beginnings are, I think, you know, very much like other sort of uh diasporans who uh transition from the continent elsewhere, you know? So my parents uh went to school in the US. I was born there, but then unlike some, they came back. You know, uh, my dad got involved in politics. And then during the coup in the early 80s, we relocated back to the U.S. But my dad is a Pan-Africanist. I think that's where I get a lot of my fighting spirit for everything African. You know, uh, he believes very much in the continent. He was like, oh, I'm not staying out there. You know, so we returned to uh, the continent, but we went to the east. And so grew up in Nairobi for a few years, returned to Ghana for a couple of years, and then finally settled back in Colorado Springs, Colorado when I was about 12. I love that. Yeah. And I want to kind of, I think because I'm so eager to get into Korea, I'm trying to pace myself here. <laughs> we can but... jump anywhere you want. <laughs> anywhere you want. I think your career journey has been nothing short of extraordinary. Mm. And like I said, it's been, we, we, we can call a spade a space. We know what time it is in this environment, in the entertainment space that we're working. Mm -hmm. You know, I almost say it's cultural marketing now because essentially black culture is popular culture, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So can you kind of take us back to a pivotal moment that ignited your passion for marketing yeah. um, and set you on the path to becoming a, a CMO? Because I guess when you say CMO, we always think of it as the highest level, but it's like you didn't just jump to the end, right? Sure so <laughs> what, what was kind of maybe one of those pivotal moments that ignited that journey for you? Yeah. Well, I always say that it really started from youth, right? Because uh, I think sometimes when you think about your career and you think about how you were supposed to be, we often try to model ourselves after somebody else. You know, you see the success stories and then you're like, oh, I should be that person, right? Um, that wasn't working for me, I think, for obvious reasons. <laughs> you know, it's like there wasn't anybody in the higher offices who came from where I came from, who understood the struggles I have, who name is mispronounced every time somebody says it, you know? Um, and for me, it was like, you know, getting to Colorado Springs when I was 12 was pivotal because it meant that I had to figure out a way to connect with people uh, when they all their perceptions of me were so wrong. You know, it's like being in Colorado and saying you're from Ghana, you know, they were just like, well, where is that, first of all? You know, it's like, do they eat food? You know, do clothes like it was very very difficult uh but the only way to connect with people was to connect on pop culture you know so it meant that like the things we shared were music were fashion was food you know was sports like all those things were connection points and so even though i was using pop culture as survival really uh it became my i guess my unique skill you know, because I was naturally also talented at remembering data points and being able to connect things and seeing trends before other people. I was doing that when I was like 14, you know? So for me, like the career that I've had, you know, funny enough, when you were talking about, you know, being <laughs> getting your education first, <laughs> that was for my parents the same thing where, you know, they were like, hey, look, you're going to go to medical school first. Okay, that's what you're going to do. 
Now, before I'm you like, start this XYZ. Exactly. Before you do this other thing. <laughs> now, I did the trick was like, you know, I took all my medical school, like, you know, prep things. I applied to med school. I got in and then I disappeared to New York City. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, I went underground. And I'm like, I just need a year. And the year was transformational for me because uh, even though I didn't have the support of my parents, I really wanted to follow this passion that I have for this space, for the creative spaces. And it, uh, it changed my life. My, I guess entertainment fell into my lap by accident. I mean, I have this weird title in London, which is, goes by the Minister of Enjoyment. And I was able <laughs> to manipulate into going out nightlife, but making it fun. And so it almost became this thing of like curating for establishments. So the Marriott Hotel, when they first opened their first lifestyle, it was like, okay, how do we make this the spot? I was very, I very, I understood the landscape of making things the spot, right? Yeah, yeah. So what, how that galvanized was like any artist that would come to the UK would be like, oh, we need to connect you to Irene. She, she, know, she knows how to curate the list. She will know how to make it popping. I guess for me, the difficulty at the beginning was translating that, that word popping into cultural currency and into marketing terminology. How has that been for you navigating that? Because I guess it's almost you're selling culture to bosses. I've always, even to this day, my job now revolves around me still explaining cultural, cultural relevance to global brands, right? And you look at those Zooms and you look at all those spaces and you're just like, really? Yeah. How did you really kind of elevate to be able to articulate, articulate yourself in a yeah. way that it kind of manifested internally into like the dream projects that you wanted to yeah. do? You know, it's an excellent question because I think so many of us get frustrated like that, right? Because you're trying to express something that you know innately to somebody who doesn't, you know? And um, this is, again, what makes sometimes people like us, our talent, so special because what you have to do is learn to speak their language first and then you add your language to it. So oftentimes what has happened to me is that... Um, what I am trying to explain about what is happening in pop culture, I actually don't explain it in the way that I would to you. I explained it the way they would understand it. And then I put in my thing underneath it. So sometimes they didn't even know what was going on. You know what I mean? Until it was too late. And then it was like, oh, this works. Like, tell us how you did that. I mean, one such example is that so I was working at, uh, at Apple. We built Apple Music. And in order to help the world understand streaming, because at the time, uh, streaming was not a popular thing. Nobody knew what that was. And playlists were a difficult thing to express on how they worked on a service like that. And so my idea for getting to the bullseye target customer who was, um, you know, we called her gatekeeper mom, basically 35 to 45 year old woman because it was her credit card that was on iTunes, right? Uh, and we needed her to transfer over to Apple Music. And the way to get that was to explain to her why this thing was going to be good for her. And so I took the idea of a playlist and said, well, this is like a mixtape. Right. Because she understood what mixtapes were and said, OK, we're going to translate that. But I couldn't explain to Eddie Q, who basically was Steve Jobs partner in building Apple. And he's in charge of everything software at Apple. That mixtapes are actually the coolest thing ever. He would not understand that. And so I said, OK, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create a commercial. Right. I hired Ava DuVernay. Love Ava. Yes. Starring Taraji P. Henson, Kerry Washington and Mary J. Blige. And I made the commercial of 
them getting together like girlfriends and playing music from back in the day. And all they were doing was streaming it, right? They hit one and then the playlist would go. And in that, in doing that, nobody understood what I was doing, but we understood it. The girls not pregame. Correct. That's correct. And in fact, the <laughs> extra special piece of information I'll give you that is not even public information is that the place they were listening to was from my birthday party. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it was like legit. It was real. And so when that commercial hit the air, and of course I placed it at a specific time, right? Because the Emmys that year uh, was a historic moment because there was five black women who were nominated for awards. And I knew that if I put that commercial on that specific show, when I knew a lot of black women would be watching, that I would connect to the right audience. And so I did it, and the thing blew up. I mean, it was everywhere. People were talking about it. So the next morning, because Emmys are on Sunday night, next morning, Monday morning, I go to the office, and I'm like, oh, man, it's either I'm going to be like the most loved person in this building, or I'm about to get fired. You know, there was only two ways to go. So I get in and Eddie Q literally calls me into his office and he was just like, how did you do that? And can you do it again? My point is that like if I had tried to explain why it would make sense to have these three black women talking about playlists and rocking out to the pregame girls night and like playing air drums, you know, it would not have made sense. And so all I did was explain the fact that I was trying to connect gatekeeper mom to understand what a playlist is by connecting it to mixtapes. That's how I explained it. And then I added my own sauce on top of on it top. to make it pop. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. To dive a bit deeper into that then, what advice would you maybe have for aspiring film executive facing similar hurdles yeah. of that translation to the powers that be that are releasing the check? Yeah, well, the thing is that like, you know, I think part of our frustration, like I said, is that and this is a hard thing to say, but I feel like I'm in family, right? I could tell you stuff. <laughs> okay. It's like the difficult thing is that we understand the unfairness of it all. We get it. We understand. It's like, look, we wish that we could just go in there and be like, yes, of course it's going to work and use our things and say, yes, this is going to happen because I told you so, you know, or try to explain in a way. But the problem is that they're not going to understand it. And so first, accepting that, which is a very hard thing, is actually the first step in breaking for yourself, like giving yourself your own peace of mind, which is that they're not going to understand the language you speak. So you have to get better at the language they speak and then infuse your language into it and then make them want your language. That's what it is. And so for me, it's like, look, I learned this also in childhood, which, you know, you'll understand this because <laughs> we're all, you know, here Ghanaian. But the um, when we were in Colorado Springs, one of my earliest memories from that time was that I had finally broken into the cool girls circle you know what i mean like the the hot chicks who were like all blonde and blue-eyed but whatever that's fine and um i was finally able to invite them over to my house you know and my mom was preparing banku hey <laughs> i was like can we just order some pizza and she was like i will pizza yenzi pizza and i was like what no but we can't you give them soup and it's like too hot and their little red cheeks and all that and it was so embarrassing to me. And she took me to the side after they had come, after they enjoyed the whole fufu situation. And she was like, look, when you are in these spaces, and she said it just like this. She talked to me like I was an adult, even when I was 12. She's like, when you're in these spaces, you need to make them bend to you. 
Like, when you go into their house, okay, eat their pizza, okay? Eat their burgers, eat the fries. When they come to your house, they're going to eat your food. They're going to eat the banku. Ah, I'm telling you. <laughs> and it was such a, of course, at the time, all I was doing was crying, and I was upset still, right? You but wanted the a, pizza. Ah, I wanted the pizza. <laughs> In fact, I refused to eat the fufu anyway. But, of course, as an adult, I can look back, and, and I, you mentioned Lael, my 14-year-old daughter. I impart the same messages to her. And sometimes that's difficult, right? Because she doesn't understand it either. But the truth of the matter is that that has served me very, very well in the business world, which is that I am going to learn your language, right? I'm going to eat your pizza. But then when you come to my house and you're in my presence, I'm going to have you eat my fufu, right? And make sure that you understand the value of the pepper that's in there, of the, the spices in <laughs> okay? You're going to eat with your hands. You're going to make sure that you understand the value of what I bring. And so the same thing is what I'm translating about how you connect. Because often we're just like, oh, well, you don't, you know, you don't want to speak my language. And so I'm frustrated and I want to walk out. But the truth of the matter is that you can learn their language and learn it better. I want to talk a little bit about moving from sector to sector and maybe some transferable skills. Because technology, to automotive, to streaming, to food and beverage, you know, it's from some people, one end of the spectrum to the other, right? Are there any transferable skills that you would say maybe elevated or amplified one territory into the other? And is there any you can share with us? Yes, yes. It's such a good question because, again, I think sometimes we give away the power we have to external situations, right? We say, okay, well, this is this industry. How do they behave in that industry? Let me behave like that. And so it makes it very difficult when you want to switch jobs or switch careers or move into a different sector because you're thinking, oh my gosh, maybe I can't do it because I don't know this sector. I don't know this industry. uh, And they're not going to accept me because I only know this thing. We have to become more self-centered in that it's really about what are you offering to the sector? What are you offering to the industry? It's really not about the industry. You know what I mean? Like I am, and I'll say it, I'm the greatest pop culture marketer alive. And it doesn't matter. Toot, toot, beep, beep. In fact, (laughs) and it doesn't matter what industry it is. You know, it's like, so that's why I'm not afraid when it's like, oh, well, I can be a marketer for Uber. And sure, I'll be the top marketer at Uber. I can also be the top marketer at Apple Music. I can be the top marketer at PepsiCo. I can be the top marketer at Netflix. I'm switching industries because I just know I'm the best. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is that if you understand what your value is and what you are bringing to the table, it really doesn't matter what industry you're in. It really doesn't matter what company it is. It doesn't matter who the people are who are in the room. As long as what you're bringing is unique and the top, it won't matter. I'm going off chart here. I'm just going to ask something about landscape and trends because... Obviously, we've seen over the years, as both working within the marketing space, how, you know, Afrobeats now and the continent is almost at the forefront, right, of popular culture at the moment. So I want to pick your brain a little bit on, like, ways that people, us, that are living, breathing, sleeping it every day can not almost capitalize of it because that's probably the wrong word to use, but make sure that we're not getting left behind in certain conversations, because I think from what I'm, this is my seventh year in Ghana. My name is Ama. I'm joking. Um, this is my seventh year in Ghana, but also I, I came, Michaela Cole brought me to Ghana for the first time. I'm going to give you a little fun history fact. And she took me to Labadi Beach. And every single year, 
I stay at the body beach. I do sunrise with my mum. We pray on the body beach on, on New Year's Eve every year. It's our thing. Um, but I say all of that to say in that I saw the switch at the year of the return, which I think has been amazing because I feel like you've really, what has happened there is you've opened this landscape to the US and in, and the UK to us. So I would say more the US than the UK through that campaign of the year of the return. But now... I work in agency world, right? Well, we come from agency background. I can see everyone coming. We can see the wolves are coming, right? So I guess my question to you is, from a trend-led perspective, how can we almost make sure that the authenticity of what we have built here doesn't get consumed without the people who have built it? Okay, that's, that's an excellent question. But here's the controversial answer that I'm going to give you, Okay. Um, um, yeah. which is that it is a very, very difficult thing to hold the tide. You know, it's like the tide is like the ocean. You know, if you try to control it, it will drown you. And so instead of trying to control this tide that is coming, it's like you got to get ahead of it. So what is the next thing? This Afrobeats culture thing that we've started is gone. It is out of our control. It is gone. Don't try to, don't try to like capture it. You'll drown. You'll drown in your own frustration because you're going to be out here trying to like reclaim the magic or reclaim the ownership and it's going to drown you, right? I feel the very same way about the year of return and about what is happening in Ghana. You know, I was here in 2017 in the meeting I had with the president and talked about what his plans were for 2019. And he had just made the, this, like the pro proclamation at the United Nations that 2019 was going to be marked the year of return. It was a very controversial moment. I don't think people know that. Like it was, it was so, it was such a big shift because nobody had ever said that. Nobody ever said, we're going to take accountability, right? And then I'm sitting there thinking, well, this is all like policy and this is all, you know, like, poli like political talk. None of us are going to care about that. You know, it's like the people care about sex appeal. They care about pop culture. They want to come in and have a good time. And so as I sat and thought about what it would take, it was like, no, we've got to celebrate music. We got to celebrate artists like Small God. You know, we got to celebrate, <laughs> we got to celebrate the food. We got to celebrate spaces like Kozo. You know, make them understand that this is a place that's sexy and it's hot. You don't have to go to San Tropez. You don't have to go to Paris. Like you come to Accra and have a great time. And so in 2017, as I was writing the strategy, that was what was on my mind. And actually, you know what's funny? Is that I was sitting at Labadi Beach in 2017. I had six friends with me. We were the only people on the beach. I saw you. Uh-huh. I well, saw you at Labadi that time. Exactly. Not, not this specific moment. But in I fact, saw you. <laughs> but in 2017, it was like, I mean, we were like trying to avoid trash. You know, there was nobody out there. Boris Kojo, Nicole Ari Parker, Yvonne Orji, Atul Bernasco, his wife Marie. And one other random ass person, I don't know. But it was us. And we were standing there and I was thinking, if we bring a hundred influential people to do the things that we like to do when we come home, people will see this differently. I didn't, I didn't need the president to go make more speeches. I was like, what I need to do is invite influential people to come here and I'm going to let them tell it. And then the truth, and this comes back to your question, is that then I had to let it go. 
that had to let it go. It's no longer belongs to me. It's like you write the strategy and you let it go. You let it fly. And so now when on Monday morning, when we're all at Labadi Beach and there's 10,000 people out there, I'm just standing there looking at them and smiling. I'm not trying to control it. I'm not trying to say like, oh, y'all know I started it. I'm not doing that. Let it fly. Let it go. And when I'm in, you know, running around LA and somebody's like, oh, Ghana's so popping. I'm going. I'm like, good. You should go. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not trying to control it. And so the question you're asking is about how we retain control. The challenge I'm making to you is that not try to control the ocean. It's like, you got to find the next sea. And so if you're trying to get ahead of this thing, get to the next trend and then get to the next trend and then get to the next trend. And before you know, people are going to look at you and say, she knows where she's going. I'm going to follow her. So I'm going to keep to win. Um, I wanted to, this is a personal question as well. And I always ask my guests this when they come on the show. One piece of crucial advice that you received yeah. that has helped you shape your leadership philosophy? Oh, gosh. Well, I didn't receive this advice. It was something that happened to me okay. that I then changed the way I lead. Um, and it was really unfortunate. You know, it's like I was early in my career uh, in New York City. I was working for Spike Lee and um, super early in my career. I mean, I was like in for like four years, you know? Um, I had a woman, a black woman boss who I thought was going to change my life. Uh, and she turned out to be the devil, just incarnate. You know what I mean? I mean, look, it was bad. We're keeping it you know 100. Saying? We're keeping it up. 100. Here, okay. It was bad. It was so bad. And the thing that I recognized, and look, look, it's hard to be objective when you're being beaten so badly, mm -hmm. right? But I, I was really trying to be thoughtful about why it would be that she would treat me in such a way. And I understood that it was because she had been treated that way, you know, and that she had come up in a time, especially like she was a pretty senior executive and I'm sure she went through hell. Sure, she was micromanaged. I'm sure she was cursed out. I'm sure she was chased around the room and chased out of the room. I'm sure all those things happened to her. So all she was doing was transferring her trauma to me, you know, and um, it's like I said, look, I'm no angel myself. It was very difficult to be objective about that and see it for what it was when she was giving me such a hard time and making my life so miserable. But what I learned is that I never wanted to be her. You know, I never wanted to make anyone else feel like they needed to earn their stripes to be in the room. And so even now, it's like the black women who work for me, black women who've been on my team, so really anybody, but specifically black people, because you know, but they have been... To me, like I, I am a caretaker. I'm not just a leader. I'm in charge of their well-being. I'm in charge of the health of their life and their career so that they don't become traumatized and pass it on to somebody else. I want those traumas to stop with me. And so I refuse to turn that into anything that somebody else will feel like they have to overcome later. I want to be as giving, as Gosh, it makes me emotional. You know? It's like, I want to be as warm as possible so that even in my own struggle of these spaces I'm in, which is not an easy road, you know, because people always say like, oh, crash the glass ceiling and they want to cheer and be like, yes, keep crashing. I'm just like, you know what happens when you crash, you crash through glass? Not yet. Collapse. You get cuts, bruises. 
you bleed. Yeah. There's big scars that don't go away. So I'm not over here like a whole being. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that trauma is going to stop with me. And so for me, the lesson that I've learned in leadership is that I don't want to pass on anything that would harm the next person. Yeah. And I want us all to do that. It's like nobody deserves to earn stripes. They are there because they are human and they are talented. And so treat them as such. Yeah. It's so weird because even though you're on the other side of the world to me, mm. I feel like it's because of you. I'm, I don't have as hard of a time. Mm. Because I came from, like I said, I came from nightclub and entertainment, <laughs> but on the outside. And actually I'd worked for myself for 16 years before two years ago taking the first female black director at any global talent agency. So I'm going to give myself that accolade because I don't say it enough. But going back to your previous point that you mentioned earlier about understanding what your value is, my fear was I was going into an ecosystem that worked like a box and I was a triangle and I felt like they were trying to rotate me to fit into that box. But they wanted you because you were the triangle, right? So... I guess the difficulty for me was still remembering the reason why they wanted me because I was the triangle, not the square. And you fought different and you brought different ideas and your experiences were different. So again, like you said, you had something to bring to the table. You had a different perspective. I guess the difficulty with that for me, what I'm experiencing, which I'm being 100% honest on this platform, is what it's about, is you start to feel like they are shaping you into the square. Because like you said, because you are the first or because you are the person that everybody's looking to for the answers, you start, you, it is tiring. You feel the weight on your shoulders. And I feel it now. Like I feel it from London, like being able to, now the focus very much is the continent but very much in a front-facing way because the money is Latinx, right? Because obviously that's what they aligns with them the most, right? So it's like the difficulty now is that we know what is coming. We're ahead of that trend that you that you mentioned earlier. But I often find that difficulty is, is that I'm feeling like, are they shaping me now to become in the square? How do I retain being the triangle? Okay, so here's another <laughs> controversial answer, okay? It's like, look, your experiences with them and the square should actually change you. You should become better. Like the triangle you were should no longer be. Now you should be a trapezoid. You see what I'm saying? So it's like, again, just back to what I was saying about language and learning them and then becoming better at it. It's like, don't be so resistant to the square. You need to actually be a shapeshifter. It's what you need to do. You know, and so it's like, how do you contain what you have been also while molding yourself into the square and then becoming the trapezoid? You see what I'm saying? Yes. I know I'm using a lot of analogies here, but basically what I'm trying to say is that it, it's not fair. I'm not going to pretend like it's a square because they, they like to be a square and they can be a square all day long. But I think that's so boring. I feel sad for you that you have to be a square your whole life. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm over here like, today I'm going to be a circle. And the next day I'm going to be a trapezoid. <laughs> I don't know any more shapes, so I can't <laughs> use more examples. Uh, rectangle. Uh, thank you. Rectangle. 
But my point is that um, the experiences that we have should evolve us. It should. The challenge that you're going to have is trying to remember what your center is. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. You know? And so it's like, be honest to your own truth. But you should evolve. You should change. And if you don't, then you've actually failed. <laughs> so I'm going to keep doing this. I want to talk a little bit about your memoir. Oh, yeah. And get into it. The Urgent Life. Me, I'm always running that fast-paced life. High life. <laughs> um, when writing your memoir, um, did you uncover any aspects of your life or career that surprised you? Or provided new insights on how and how did this impact your perspective? Hmm. I mean, I think I learned a lot through the writing process. Actually, no, it's not even through the writing process. It's through the selling process. Both in selling the book and then promoting the book. The writing might have been the easiest part, even though that was hard as hell. Um, selling my book was difficult because... You know, memoirs are popular, but memoirs by black women aren't. Um, also, what they wanted was my career story and not my personal story, which is what I thought I needed to write. Because people say all the time, they're like, oh, well, you know, write the book about how to become a business boss. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm only a business boss because of what happened to me in my personal life. You know, without the trials and the traumas and the tragedies, I wouldn't be the badass I am. I'd be different. And so you needed to understand that before I can write any book about being a corporate boss. And also it's like, again, this is why I come back to about being self-centered. I'm like, look, I am a better executive because I have two cultures that I swim in between. I'm a better executive because I'm a single mom. I'm a better executive because I eat fufu some days. <laughs> Small God, sometimes. I'm a better executive because I understand both languages and I can move easily in between them. You know what I mean? And so selling the book was the hardest part and really trying to get to an understanding that our stories matter. And that my story is not necessarily your story. And both of our stories can exist. Because again, the other lie that people try to tell you is that there can only be room for one. one. You know? And so it's like, oh, well, we already have one memoir by a black woman. We don't need another one. And I'm like, well, <laughs> you haven't heard my story. So I'm going to write it. You know? So selling it was difficult. And then promoting it was a whole nother matter because, again, I think that our own expectations um, of people are really harsh and critical, you know? And I said this all the time, by the way, when I finally got into the uh, boardroom at Netflix, I realized a really, really big truth. I mean, I knew it already from a lot of the jobs I'd been in, but at Netflix, it was very, very pointed, which was that, look, we can spend a lot of money, and I'm saying we as if, you know, still an executive at, at Netflix, like we can spend a lot of money making content that looks like you, that sounds like you, all that stuff. But unless you watch it, we're not making another one. And so you see this, the cyclical problem that we have, right? Which is that if we say, oh, well, you know what? The only film we have is that one and it's terrible and it doesn't represent me. Well, unless there are numbers against that film, we're not doing another one. 
So I always try to encourage people. I'm like, I don't care if you have to leave the TV on and walk out the room. Turn that damn movie on and let it play. We need the numbers. Or if there's a song that's playing, streaming, I need you to listen to it. So today, when you get back to wherever you're going and you turn on Apple Music or Spotify or whatever other platform you use, play some music by Small God. In any case, you know what I mean? Like, let it play because those numbers are going to help. And so when you see a book written by someone like me, buy the damn book. You know what I mean? Because that's what's going to help us. That's what's going to happen when the next black woman comes into the room and tries to sell her memoir. They're going to be like, oh, well, the success of Bose's book. So therefore, we are going to give you that advance. And that's how we make it happen. And so my promo tour was grueling. I've been on tour for almost a year. Wow. You know, but only because I know that it's not just about my own success, but it's about all of our success. If I sell, if I get those numbers, you know, the day that Amazon picked my book as the editor's pick and they put it up during like the Black Friday sales and this and that, man, I cried. Not just because it was for me, but I was like, man, this, like now anybody can be like, oh, this is like her book. And fine, fantastic, use it. And so it's like, I just want to encourage all of us that we are all responsible, not just for the complaint of wanting to see ourselves in these pieces of content, whether it's books or film or music or any other kind of content that we consume, but that we have to actually be the audience. And even if we don't like it right now, still consume it. Because that's what happens on Monday morning when they get up in there and look at the numbers. And they're like, oh, <laughs> a lot of people watch this film. So we got to make another one. It is galvanizing the community. Because I always think that actually if we, if we came together more, I think that's actually our weak point in that that's what they've got up on, got one up on us because we don't. If we all supported the one thing, like you said, everything's data driven. I don't think we realize because social media is so instant and because we only show the highlights and it's fire emoji, thumbs up, hands in the air, you know, we don't actually realize that it's, it, we need to galvanize to be able to all push to one resource to be able to amplify, right? Oh, gosh. Today I'm in church, guys. I'm really, really in church. Um, balancing speed and strategy, uh, I find sometimes can be a recurring challenge. Um, could you maybe give us one or two examples from your life where maintaining this balance has led to successful outcomes, both professionally and personally? Yeah. Well, gosh, the balance. Mm. Here's the thing. There's no such thing, really, mm. as balance. You know, I think we're all trying to find it because we, you know think that we should be in soft girl era right now <laughs> and all that. I think we're misunderstanding the assignment. <laughs> you know, it's like, there is no such thing as balance. Mm. I hate to break it to you. Mm. But it's like, look, when you are in your lane and it is time to go, sis, I'm telling you, step on that gas. Mm. Like, do not slow down. Don't wait for anybody. If somebody is slowing you down, leave them. And step on the gas. And you know what? The thing is, I don't want you to burn out for sure. But let's not get confused that like the success comes from living soft. If you really want it, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to push on that gas. You're going to have to go, 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 go until you don't have any more. But the challenge for me is that the balance of motherhood and being an ambitious woman meant that I also had to sacrifice some things. I had to come to agreement with my child mm -hmm. on some things. <laughs> and so it means that like, for instance, 
We have a shared calendar. I'm going to get real practical with you. We have a shared calendar. And when there is something important that she wants me to attend, it goes on the calendar. Otherwise, I'm doing what I need to do in order to advance my career. And she understands the power of that. And so for her, she knows that like, oh, if I want mommy to come to this volleyball game, that's one on calendar and nothing will stop me from being there. She also knows that she can't put a volleyball game on the calendar every single damn day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I've also got to do things to advance me, to help us, and to afford our lives. And so for me, the balance in life means that you have to understand what it is that you need in your life in order to succeed, right? But the if you want to get to the top, there is no soft life. That's a hard life. And so you got to go. And if you want it, that's what you got to commit to. So for me, it's like, look, again, we can't keep lying to ourselves. You know, and I wish somebody would just tell the damn truth instead of pretending like, oh, yes, you get to the top. And then it's like, oh, we're just out here. Da, da. No, however you behave right now is how you behave when you get up there. So if you're chilling right now and you're out here just, you know, <laughs> trying to do it, you're never going to get up there. And by the way, when you get up there, it's not easier. I think I, there's another misunderstanding. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like you're going to make it to the C-suite or, you know, the top of the top and somehow life is going to slow down for you and that you're going to, it's going to be better. The thing is that like, it is even harder because the spotlight is greater. Yeah. You know, there's so many more people who are looking at you, who have an opinion about what you should do. You know, I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, but do you think you should wear that? Because, you know, you're the CMO. Excuse me. I happen to like my breasts. I like them outside. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> They're really nice, too. You know what I'm saying? My sister, they're perky. Ha, they're perky. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that, like, the spotlight is bigger. People have more of an opinion on what you should do. They have an opinion on what you should say. They have an opinion on how you do it, blah, blah, blah. And so balance means that you've got to figure out what is going to help you mentally stay up there. But also, don't get it twisted that you're not moving hard in order to stay. I came to your workshop yesterday. Shouts out to the Badass Workshop. It was amazing. Um, and you, and you quoted this, you quote, you did actually put this quote in your book and I'm going to help get you to help me with it because I was frantically taking notes yesterday as I was sitting down, but it resonated with me because going off the back of what you've just said, I feel like when you do get to the top, I feel like that goalpost always moves. You're always like, oh, I want to achieve this. And then you get there and you're just like, oh, but actually let's add a couple more zeros. And then you get a couple more zeros and you're like, actually, I want a couple more zeros on top of that. So the workload keeps coming because you keep going and there was something that you said yesterday about living the width of your life rather than the length and enjoying and being present in the, in the in being present of where you are now and it resonated with me so much because I did say that for 2024 one of one of the key values for me is actually celebrating the smaller wins like this would have really scared the old me I'll be honest with you but just to feel like no one come in, a new environment, like my girl gang is not here. I'm in Ghana one up. I'm here by myself, you know, but just actually now I know tonight, me, I'm joining Small God in the club and I'm going <laughs> to celebrate because this is an achievement within itself. Just being able to accomplish this, right? So I guess I wanted you to elaborate a little bit more on that yesterday for those who weren't there, but yeah. just, you know, enjoying the width rather than the length. Yes, yes, yes. Well, what I was saying yesterday is that... um you know, I think we've been so conditioned to think about the length of life. You know, it's like everything is sort of created to think about how many years you can be here versus how well you're living your life. You know, how wide you're living. it. And it also 
messes with us because then we put things in the future. We say, oh, I'm going to do this when I'm this age. and I'm going to do that when I'm that age. And I'm going to do, you know, we just keep pushing as if the years are what matter and not as if the width of the life you're living today matters. You know, and so when I changed my perspective on that, that's actually when the unlock happened. That's when I started like living real large was when I realized that these days need to be so full. You know, every time I'm in a space, I want to be present. I want to be wholly there. Like this moment right now, I am here with Irene. I'm here thinking about this very moment. I'm enjoying being in your presence, seeing your faces, nodding at me, smiling at me. Like I'm enjoying that. That to me is a widening experience. Or when I'm at for future later, I'll be there twirling around and having a good time because I want to be in that moment and present. And when I'm in the boardroom, <laughs> look, I'm in there getting every single drop that I can out of the experience and out of that room. I'm learning from the people. I'm learning from those who frustrate me. I'm learning from the people who are cheering me. I'm hearing from my colleagues, like all of those things. I want to live the width of my life. And so if you change your perspective on that, instead of thinking about the years that you're going to be here and how you can do this, like when you're 30 or when you're 45 or when you're 60, it's like, think about how you can expand your life today so you can do it now. And if you do that, I promise you, no matter how long you're here, you will so love the life that you're living. Like, I love this life. I'm enjoying my life. I know there's more to come. I have bigger goals to achieve. Like you said, the goalpost keeps changing. But I'm, I, look, I'm enjoying my life. I'm chief uh, enjoyment officer as well, or minister of enjoyment. Minister of enjoyment. I'm there. I'm with you, my sister. I'm with you. I was actually going to say, so when the aunties are saying, where's your husband? You should say, I'm enjoying the width of my life. Correct. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. So I'm, I'm going to put some questions out to the audience. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you some quick fire questions okay. for Buzz. Your favorite city in the world? Accra. Oh. I your mean, come on. Your favorite food to eat? You know Ashley's watching. Hey. Is that post club or after? <laughs> post club? Why are you trying to regulate my life? Anytime. <laughs> what do you do to relax in your spare time? I sleep. That's it. I'm with you on that one. Favorite hobby? Oh, man. Watching my daughter do anything. Um, when do you feel the most comfortable in your own skin? Mm. Wow, that's a really good question. Uh, how, when do I feel the most comfortable in my own skin? Man, when, I, when I'm dressed to kill. Mm. <laughs> Team tall girls to the end. Amen. Take no prisoners. And what was the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hmm. I think I would, I would quote my mother again, mm -hmm. you know, that like when they're in my presence, they bend to me. Try. Mm. <laughs> and what's next for you, boss? Ah, whatever God wills. I'm so open. I'm so open, you know? Ready to receive all yeah, the blessings. Ready to receive. It's, it's, um, mm. actually just on that point, cause I want to expand that a little bit, cause mm -hmm. I know we all have hashtag goals. Mm -hmm. You know, we all have these plans that we're creating. Um, but don't get trapped by your plan. You know, it's like, it's so easy to write these things down and say that, like, I want to do this and do that and do that, do that, do that. Um, but you'll get trapped that way because you'll miss an opportunity that you'll ignore because you were so busy looking at your goals. You're so busy looking at the thing that you want to achieve that you missed the opportunity. And so it's like, even in my corporate career, um, there were several times when um, I re remember distinctly, especially at Apple. When, you know, it was a successful company, I was successful there. 
I certainly had goals in the company, you know, where I want to be promoted, what I want to work on next, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but when I got the call from Travis Kalanick, uh, he's the founder of Uber, uh, to talk to him about what was happening at the company, if I'd been so busy thinking about like what was going to happen in the next job at Apple and the next thing I was going to work on, I would have missed the job that actually doubled my salary and gave me the most popular name in tech. I would have missed that, you know? So I think for you, it's like perhaps the thought that you should have is not necessarily just like be so committed to this list that you have because you'll miss the opportunity. And that's why I say I'm open to God to give me whatever is coming next. I've already accomplished so much, but I know there's so much more to come. And so I'm open to whatever the next opportunity is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Touch your neighbor and say amen. A bit of time for maybe three or four questions. Who wants to go first? This lady down here. Hello. Thank you so much for hosting this and like curating the space. I was telling my boyfriend I was a little nervous about panels, but this felt like more of a conversation. So thank you both. Um, my question was a little bit to your point about, again, speaking their language, right? And I wanted to know a little bit like about the step prior to that, right? Because we know that everybody has a different business practice and focus. So I wanted to know about how you identify potential partners and people that potentially might represent your language and your focus. Mm. Okay, so that's uh, a multi-layered question. Okay, so first, you know, again, I'm bringing it back to self, right? Because um, the first thing to understand is yourself, clearly. You know, meaning that like, it's not just like knowing what you want and how you want it and all those things, but also understanding your intuition. I taught this about this a little bit yesterday during the workshop, which is that um, if you don't understand your intuition, you will lead, you'll be led into things that aren't actually for you. You know, and so it's not like everybody's language is a good language to speak. I don't care how popular or how, you know, successful they are. It's like sometimes that language is not meant for you. And if you start speaking that language, you'll probably talk yourself into some terrible situation. You know, and so it's like understanding your own intuition and knowing whether or not that space is right for you. And I recognize that that's also a scary thing, you know, because you're just like, well, how would I know? How would I know? And what I said yesterday was that you have to practice listening to your intuition. And it starts with the small behaviors, which are like, don't necessarily just ask everybody for their opinion on something. Trust yourself. You know? And I made the joke also yesterday that it's like, you know, how many people like ask their friend, like, should I wear this today? And like, if you did that, stop that. <laughs> like, start there. You know, it's like sometimes it's the small things that break big habits. And so how do you build your intuition by continuing to listen to yourself and trusting your own gut? And then that way, when you are in situations that are meant for you, you will know. And when you're not in situations that are meant for you, you will know. And so it's a combination of not just learning their language, but to your point, the step before, which is just like, should you be in that country at all to even begin to learn the language? You know, because maybe you're not supposed to be. So for me, it's like, that's how I have gained my own power and also my own independence, even though I've been in these corporate spaces, which is understanding where and when I'm supposed to be and when I'm not supposed to be. Thank you. So I think I'm going to start with a statement and then a question, right? So first statement, not everyone the here. Accent, the London accent is thriving. It's very, very thriving. Very thriving. Like, I, I have not. I, yeah, I had <laughs> washed off being here for three years, right? 
But first and foremost, not everybody is a Londoner here. Not everybody has had the opportunity to understand who Irene is to us as a people. Um, not just as Londoners, not just as black people, not just as women, just as a people, as a culture. Um, really, really important human, not just because, just like Bazoma is very authentic, um, very down to earth, shows us that we can actually just be badass bitches as well as being boss bitches. We don't have to conform. So seeing you both here today is really like, it's, it's raised my paws. Because obviously we met at a panel last year, Bazoma, and I told you, you're amazing, right? And I'm not really inspired by too many people, but seeing you two up here has really like made me really emotional. I'm so glad I came. Thank you for giving us an excuse to Detty December, get lit for free. Yeah. <laughs> we, <laughs> to the question. So we spoke a little bit about, you know, galvanizing cultures. Um, I work in the tech industry and we know that it's very fast paced. Um, one of the big conversations is sustainability, not in the climate sense. I'm talking about in the sense of the conversation you had earlier. When there is a trend happening, how do we stop it from only remaining a trend and actually becoming something that is as concrete as it needs to be in the real world? Because obviously we know that as black people, as black women, we are, as a culture also, we are fetishized. Right. So how do we make sure that trend doesn't just become the latest fetish or trend? How do we make sure that that stamp is as permanent as possible? I know it's a very difficult question. I'm sure for some of you have a um, controversial answer and I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. No, um, first of all, great statement also. Uh, yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to the point I made about the ocean, you know, not trying to own the sea. It's. Trends are just hard to own. They're hard to change. You know, it's like, look, if there's anything I've learned in the marketing space, it's that, like, sometimes you also have to know when to step away from whatever the trend is. You know, that not everything is going to, you know, when they try to tell you, like, oh, make a viral video. It's like, how do you do that? You can't. You know, some things are just going to fly and some things aren't, even though you put effort into it. So... We are putting effort into maintaining a sense of authenticity as we look at this trend of Afrobeats and of our culture being celebrated around the world. Um, but again, I, I have to caution that if we try to box it in, if we try to hold it, we will fail at it. So instead of doing that, you've just got to expand. You know, it's like, look, we know we're popping. We've been popping for centuries. And it's not going to stop because all of a sudden somebody else decided that it was cute and cool. You know, so for me, it's like, how do you keep evolving so that we can remain ahead? You know, I'm not interested in sticking to one idea and then being known for that one idea. I'm the mother of a thousand ideas. And you can take that one and steal it. And guess what? I'm so dope. I'm going to find another one tomorrow. You know what I mean? So again, it's like, let's not get caught in how to make them understand the value of this so-called trend. We celebrate ourselves, we'll enjoy ourselves. And if we start to see that something is moving in a different direction, girl, you move too. Go over there. Hello. Hello. Hi. So I just, I know the statements have been statement, but I have to add on to that. You, this is what I needed to hear today. Um, 
it's inspired me in so many different ways. And Irene, for a long time, you've inspired me just because I feel like you've elevated, but you haven't lost yourself. And you're just down to earth and you're real. And I feel like I really want to remain that because my friends cast me saying, you're too accessible, you're growing, but you're too accessible. I'm like, no, but I like it. I like to be accessible. I like to, to help my sisters and to help people like me. So um, the reason why it's come out of pivotal time and it's going to lead on to my question is that I've just left my full-time well-paid job to continue my um, business that's going well. But I'm a little bit scared. I'm scared, right? And what I found is building up my business is that what I've had to do with big companies that I've worked with, and um, just to give you an idea of what I do, I work on employer branding, so recruitment marketing for companies within tech and creative so they can hire more black and ethnic minorities. So I found that I've had to do little freebies for companies to see how sick I am. Then they go, yeah, okay, let's see, we want to partner up with you. But I don't want to do that no more. So my, my thing is, how can I get a company that doesn't know me, that hasn't seen my work, that hasn't seen what we're doing? How, how have you done that to the point where people know, I'm going to come to you for this because I know you're sick. How, how, how do you do that? You know that statement, like fish where the fish are? You have to do that. You know, the companies that don't know that you are dope, you shouldn't waste your energy chasing them, right? Because you need to go to where the fish are. So even if they are smaller companies, even if they're companies that you've already worked with who are giving you more business, spend your energy in maintaining those relationships, building those relationships, getting to be the big fish in the small pond quickly. And then before you know it, the ocean will call you because you don't want to spend your energy trying to convince somebody of your worth. The people who understand your worth, the people that you're already working with, they understand it. And so cultivate that. Get very big there. And then I'm telling you, it's like in no time, they're going to want you. And it's the same that I see for any career. It's not even just entrepreneurship. You know, if you're in a company and like your job feels small to you, you know, and you're just like, gosh, how am I ever going to be seen so that I can be promoted? I'm like, stop worrying about getting seen so much. You know, like do the job really well. Do it better than everybody. Hell, do somebody else's job on top of it. And then it's like, yes, of course. It's like, but look, sometimes they don't see you anyway. But then I'm like, hey, you got to advocate for yourself. So on top of doing the work of like, you know, cultivating the spaces where you already are, you should also boast about it. And I recognize the fact that you said you're accessible, right? Girl, you better be even more accessible. You know, it's like we really need to celebrate the wins because people get confused again that that sounds like arrogance. I'm like, it's not arrogant if I actually did it. You know what I mean? I'm not lying here. Those are facts. And so how are you even talking about yourself in these spaces so that people can hear about you? Because the more you celebrate yourself, that's when people start to pay attention. I've said it publicly before. Nobody was celebrating me until I started celebrating me. I didn't get awards until I started telling people that I deserved them. I was just going to add on to that. I was only going to add that also galvanizing your community. I think sometimes people look up to be inspired or for that help and it's just like actually it was my best friend that wrote my copy for my website it was like you know my friends that went to school with that were like doing my HR and like my lawyer and like so again it's like people think that networking is sometimes networking up but I always say sometimes networking is around like who is around you who do you have around you how do those people feed into your business as well and amplify what you're doing but also not forgetting to market yourself within that people identify to your story I'm going to want to come and invest in you as an individual as well as your business so don't forget how you as an individual connect to your business last question question. um (laughs) 
So I'm in tech. I've been in, uh, I'm an app developer. I've been in tech for 20 years. Um, so my question is, how do we get in front of investors? Because I've had two viral apps. My first app had half a million users. Mm-hmm. It was so hard to get like in front of the right people to see it. I have a new app for black women. Download it. Glow Up app is for self-care, beauty, fitness, everything. And that's going viral right now. I have over 10,000 users on it. And just trying to get in front of the right people to invest in it has been a struggle as a black woman. I see other people with apps, not even as much traction as I have. And they're getting $4 million, you know, $5 million. And I'm here like, what's the problem? Yeah. Like, I'm putting out things that people want. Like, what's, what's the issue? Okay. Well, look, we know the truth of it, which is that, like, black women are underinvested in, right? Like, 3% of the investment dollars... Uh, in the world come to us. We know that already. These are stats. There are lots of white papers written about it. There's lots of arguments about why that is and how that is and all of that. Um, part of our challenge is also, and this is where I feel like we all need to take accountability, which is that we're looking for the big white boy dollars and sometimes we're not willing to go to the small black woman venture capitalists. I know a few of them. They don't get people to come pitch them because they want the big white boy dollars. And so I'm like, well, this is a whole cycle that we have a problem with. Now, I know that their money is smaller. But how about we also help increase theirs? Because you have a viral app. They have a little bit of money. If they are able to get on top of yours and then also prove the fact they're able to invest and pick good businesses to be a part of, then other people will come to them and then they also get more money in order to reinvest. And so I see this as a big cycle where it's like, look, we all want the clout, right? You want to say like, yes, I raised $10 million or I raised it. But yeah, you're going to get that from like these big investment firms. But that's not actually going to help us either. And so how do we gather the small investments that we can? And I realize that that's a lot more hard work for you. But sometimes as the leader and as the trendsetter and as the one that somebody else 10 years from now is going to say, ah, but I followed her footsteps. That is your responsibility, you know? And so thank you for the work that you're doing. Thank you for being out in front. Thank you for the struggle. But I'm here saying, girl, it's just going to make it better for somebody else. So while I encourage you, I'm like, please also take the money from the small investments. And on that note, guys, it's all over, Jackie. Um, I'd like to thank you guys again for being here. Boz, anyway, you already know what it is. On so many levels, you've inspired me. I want to say thank you for your time, because one thing that's not promised to us is time. So just you taking the time to be here with me today, it means a lot. I've got way more questions, but we'll save those for the dance floor. Um, I'd also like to thank Kozo. This has been amazing to connect with you guys. Lifestyle experiences for hosting us today. And to you guys for being here. Um, this is TTYA Talks, the podcast. It's available on every streaming platform. We're live from Ghana, Accra. Thank you guys. See you soon. Bye. If you enjoy TTYA Talks, the podcast, please spread the word. Rate, review, subscribe, all of that good stuff. Any questions, also feel free to send me a signal on Instagram or Twitter on the handles at Irene TTYA and at TTYA Talks.